Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. I am so glad that you are joining us today. Today we're going to kick off a new series called Talking Points. The idea of talking points when it comes to kind of anything political or even business within public relations is some central kind of key things that you want to walk away or take away from any kind of presentation. This week uh, there was kind of an attempt by both political parties to kind of demonstrate some talking points. That's essentially what any um, kind of debate or any type of um, kind of political speech ultimately is trying to communicate. If you've ever watched um, any of the major headline news channels, you'll notice they'll bring in people from both sides. And oftentimes what they're doing is talking points. If you scan across the kind of a variety of channels and you listen to kind of the broader theme of what's being said, oftentimes you can kind of hone in what those talking points are because it seems every single person from that specific political party is saying something of the same type of thing. And as we go into 2020 and as we are continuing to navigate an infection and a pandemic and societal pressures and an election and what might be even an election infection, um, the reality of this year has been insane. Uh, In fact, I kind of chuckled this week when kind of coming into the week, I was like, man, you know, I actually can see a light at the end of this tunnel. And then by the end of the week, I was like, well, play 2020 just when I think. I've got you figured out. You go and just rip the rug right underneath my feet. And so um, while the content for this series is probably not going to be perfect, um, I think the timing will be. In fact, what I want to do today is going to be a little different than what I typically do in a message. Um, I want to talk to the Christians. I want to talk to those who know that they follow Christ, who would stand up, raise their hand and say, yes, that's what I am. Because in the midst of an election with so many people repeating so many talking points, how do we avoid falling into the trap of just repeating what's already being said instead of living out what we know God's kind of desire for the church is meant to be? And so today I want to kind of kick off this um, kind of message series by giving us our talking points, that us being Christians, that what do we say, what do we do? in the midst of this year that just gets increasingly insane? How do we not lose our minds and our faith when so many people around us are losing theirs? And to do that, I want to take you to a passage that in some ways may be very obscure for some of you. This is a passage that um, is in one of the largest books of the Jewish scriptures or the Old Testament. And it's a moment that has a lot to say about our current moment. There's a response that has a lot to say and shape how we respond in this moment. And so if you're not a Christian or if you're exploring Christianity or you just, you kind of got drug in here because you're sitting on a couch and your spouse wanted to watch it or your neighbor invited you to see it um, and you don't like Christians, this will be a perfect week for you because you get to take notes of all the stuff we're supposed to be doing so that you can call it out when we don't. The passage is found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is named after the prophet Isaiah. And a prophet was someone who was essentially in a very different time period, the, the, mass, the mouthpiece, the voice piece of God, to a specific time frame when Israel as a nation saw themselves as a special people of God, a people that God had picked so that he could through them show the world his love 
that he has for them. And, and this group of people were led by a king. And I think the passage I want to kind of walk through the day will feel very disconnected from the time frame at the surface level. But the substance of this passage has a lot to say to about where you and I are today. It begins in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And if you have your message notes or your app pulled up, um, especially with the newest Apple operating system, um, you can actually kind of minimize the video and be able to pull up the message notes that um, what you'll find is it's already preloaded. Isaiah 6, 1 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, one of the things that's important to know, because we live in, in a different time period, we can't fully appreciate how much and how significant the death of a king was. Isaiah had served under King Uzziah, but that will not be the last king he serves from. Isaiah will have a long, long tenure. And this is shortly into Isaiah's um, kind of ministry or vocation. And that Uzziah, when he passes away, he passes away with 52 years of reigning as Israel's king. He became the king of Israel when he was 16 years old. And so, in reality, there was probably not a single person alive in the empire at the time who remembered a time frame when King Uzziah was not the king. And so, for them, this death was an incredibly disruptive and incredibly unstable, insecure, terrifying moment for them. Not only was Isaiah's job security up in the air, but so much of the security of the nation was up in the air, too. Uzziah was a very successful king. He was successful militarily. He was successfully, um, he, was a, he was an inventor, a builder. He had expanded the footprint. He had um, kind of strengthened the security of the nation. He had um, worked in kind of international diplomatic treaties and trades. And he had set up so much that had led to a very successful and stable period in Israel's history. And so when he passed away, all of that passed away with him. On top of that, if you remember in ancient, your ancient history course, specifically ancient Middle Eastern history around 740 BC, you'll remember that there, about the time that King Uzziah is passing away, there is a rising leader um, from the Assyrian nation known as Tiglath-Pileser III. Now, Tiglath-Pileser III will, will eventually become one of the greatest military commanders in human history. That while he may not be remembered um, as quickly as someone like an Alexander the Great or an Attila the Hun, he is in very much in that same camp. When he finally passed away, he passed away with having conquered most of the known world at the time. And so as he's rising, King Uzziah is falling. And it's very concerning because it's clear even at that point that this moment happens, that Tiglath-Pileser wants to take over everything. In Israel, if you've ever wondered when you read the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures, why is Israel constantly in wars? Why is Israel, that little small strip of land, why is it so hotly contested? I mean, why would something almost the size of a Rhode Island get so much intentional kind of international pressure and constant battle? It's because historically, Israel occupied a section of land that was the center of the known world. 
Africa, Asia, and Europe, all, all the roads intersected through Israel. And it was a really important place. And because of that, Israel's always held this kind of central, outsized role in Middle Eastern politics and policy throughout human history. And so, obviously, as King Uzziah is passing away and Tiglath-Pileser is rising to the kind of this forefront as this dominant military leader, everyone is unsure of what's going to happen in their future. And it's in that moment that Isaiah has this vision or sees this play out in front of him. What does he see? He sees in the year that his king had died that the king of kings is still alive. In the year that the king had passed away, the Lord of the universe was not standing, pacing. No, he's high and exalted, seated on a throne. He's not concerning. He's not tweeting. He's not videoing. He's not trying to communicate stability. He's not uncertain about the future. He's not bringing in his advisors because King Uzziah has died. No, he is seated on the throne. He's in control. He's high and exalted. And, and while it can be missed on us as modern readers, the train of his robe filling the temple was a, a way of communicating how truly majestic what Isaiah was seeing was playing out. Isaiah is trying to communicate the uncommunicatable in words. I mean, the closest equivalent that's not even close would be imagine if you hopped in a time machine, you went back to someone who's live uh, maybe in the 1600s and you brought them to 2020. Maybe not 2020. Um, let, maybe 2019. Okay? Let's, 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 let's take them there. That's a whole lot better. So you bring them to 2019. They see a television screen. They see a smartphone. They see cars. And then you give them a, an assignment. Hey, I want you to write down what you see. So when you go back and I kick you out of the time machine in 1600s, that you'll, you'll have something to say to them besides beware of 2020, right? Like imagine a person from the 1600s trying to describe a smartphone. It would look magical to them. Imagine them describing a television or a city or a skyscraper. They wouldn't have words. And this is exactly where Isaiah is. He's trying to communicate to a people the uncommunicatable, which is why in the next passage you see him, he says, above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. The readers of the day would have been very much like we were. Like, what? Huh? Hold up. I think I was with you. Now there are something called seraphim and they have six wings and they cover their face and their feet. Like, Isaiah, what's going on? Isaiah is going to create a couple of things in this passage that haven't been created yet in the Hebrew language or in the Hebrew, um, kind of the Hebrew vernacular. One of them is the word seraphim. The seraphim is a word that essentially means burning ones or bright ones or fire. Isaiah is trying to communicate, like, I see God, but I can't see him because he's so bright. He's so glorious. It's so, he lives in such unapproachable light that the only thing I can really see are, the, are what appears to be some type of angels, but angels I've never seen before, encircling the throne. And, and he doesn't necessarily mean they're little beings of fire. Um, and one of my favorite things... Um, about nighttime is when you look up at the moon on a, a night of a full moon, um, the scientist in me 
always marvels at the fact that the light that's hitting my face isn't coming from the moon. The moon is just a ball of rock and dust. It's that the sun is so bright that even when it's not shining on the side of the earth where I am, it's so bright that when it hits the dust ball flying around us called the moon, the light reflects off the dirt back to us, and we call it moonlight. And I think in some ways this is exactly what Isaiah is seeing. He's seeing these beings, whatever they are, whoever they are, doesn't even matter. What matters is that the majesty, the brightness, the glory, the power, the greatness of God is so strong and overwhelming that even someone near him looks like they're on fire from the brightness reflecting off of him. It's far greater than the sunlight on the moon at night. And, and he creates this frame, this idea of an angel that we've never even heard of in the Jewish scriptures. And the only time that there's even something close to this will be in the book of Revelation. When John, in a similar place, is trying to describe the indescribable. And he talks about, again, seeing the same thing that Isaiah sees. And he references some type of strange being flying around God. But what I want you to notice is after he, he moves through very quickly... He's communicating some things that even from a distance is going to mean something to the people who are hearing it for the first time. Notice that these perfect beings who are so, clo so close to God that they almost radiate, that they cover their face. They don't even look at God. They don't even. And, and so in an ancient world, you'd have to understand, like, they would totally get this. Because to be in the king's presence was a very terrifying and humbling thing if you came into the king's presence and you weren't dressed perfectly and you didn't project a certain kind of like upbeatness and brightness and respect it could mean death and so this to this ancient reader they're like oh my goodness this king is so bright he's so majestic that his servants won't even look at him out of reverence to who he is at least on earth the, sur the subjects look at the king. They just wouldn't say certain things to the king. And then Isaiah turns and he points out what he's hearing them say to one another. They're not even speaking to the king of kings. They're not talking to the one who's on the throne. They're talking about him. And he says, they call to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. He's, he's trying to describe what's playing out. He's like, and not only are they incredibly bright, I hear them talking. And again, remember, the ancient readers would have picked up on what Isaiah is trying to describe here. The, the Hebrew people, um, they lived prior to the day of bold, italics, underlines, capital letters, all those are modern inventions to communicate significance. So the ancient Hebrew language, which is what the scroll of Isaiah was originally written in, the way the Hebrew people communicated superlatives or significance is that they would repeat a word. In fact, in 2 Kings 25.15, when there is translated in English pure gold, in the Hebrew it actually says gold gold. It's a way of communicating how pure the gold was. It was gold gold. My wife is beautiful, beautiful. It's a way of saying that she is the most beautiful of all the beauties, right? It's the purest gold of all the gold. 
The, in another passage, there's, um, it's, as a, in English, it says full of tar pits, but in the Hebrew in Genesis 14.10, it says pits, pits. It's this really interesting nuance about the Hebrew language. And it was a way, because most of the Hebrew people at the time this was written were not literate. They were an oral people. So most of the passages of scripture they heard were read out loud. So that's why if you ever spend time studying the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament, you'll notice there's a beauty in when it's spoken out loud and that there's a rhythm and there's a scheme and a rhyme because it was written for the ear, not the eye. And what Isaiah does here is never been done before in the Hebrew language. The entire Bible, there is not a single example of what Isaiah is about to do. He does something that for the Hebrew people is mind-blowing. He repeats the word holy three times. He says holy, holy, holy. As if to communicate the uncommunicatable, that God is beyond superlatives. He's beyond human comprehension. He's beyond what we can fathom. He's not just holy or set apart or different or perfect and pure and righteous. He's not just holy, holy. He's not just the most perfect of the perfect and the pure and the righteous and the greatness, right? He's holy, holy, holy. Distinct, different, unimaginable to the human brain. And Isaiah is trying to communicate that. And so he creates something that has never been done in the Hebrew language, has never been done since in the Hebrew scriptures. He repeats God's characteristic, his uniqueness, his distinctiveness three times in a row. And that to, to kind of really punctuate that, he says the whole earth. You're afraid that someone's going to come from another side of the earth and conquer us here on our land. No, no, no. You need to understand the God we serve is not dead. The king we follow is still alive. He's seated on a throne. He's in control. And it's not just this section of land that he's in control of. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is filled with his majesty, his power. No, no. You may be shaking, but when his followers when his subjects when his people speak the temple shakes because of the confidence of who they are and who they stand he's like this is different there's something unique in the midst of all of this isaiah looking up has this moment of insecurity where he looks within and he says oh no woe to me i'm ruined he's like i am un." I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, which, can I just say, might describe us pretty well right now. And he says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He's like, holy crap, there's God. I'm dead. Like, I mean, he's terrified. Because as humans... We have a tendency to compare ourselves to other people, which makes us feel better, right? There's always someone worse than you, and you know who they are. You might be kin to them, you might live with them, you might work with them, but you and I have someone in mind who we think about to feel better about ourselves. We think about them when we think about how we post things on social media. We think about them when we think about our marriage or how we parent, and it makes us feel better. In fact, we use this in arguments all the time to position ourselves to give us a little bit more self-righteousness. 
But in the midst of perfection, any imperfection can't stand. It becomes glaringly obvious. It's like when you were younger, and this was me in art class, right? You would draw the, the teachers like, today we're going to do self, we're going to do portraits and I want you to draw me and da, da, da. And you go to draw and you walk up and you've got your, your painting and you're so excited to show your teacher. And then the, that kid in your class, the one you don't compare yourself to because that kid is so much better at art than you are. And they walk up and they show the teacher and the teacher's like, oh my goodness, that's like a, a picture you took of me. That's so amazing. And then you're like, here you go, Miss Silverstein. Here's my picture. And she's like, that's a lovely duckbill platypus. No, no, no. That's not a duckbill platypus. That's you, Miss Silversign. You go back to your seat right now, young man. Right? Like, I mean, where all of a sudden how you do things kind of stands out and you see your imperfections. This is where Isaiah is. He's standing before God Almighty. And he's like, holy crap. I'm nothing like you. I'm nothing like you. I'm undone. I'm ruined. And it says that one of the seraphim, one of those flaming bright ones, flew to him with a live coal in his hand. This is, sounds so strange to us as modern readers. But remember, Isaiah is writing it to a people who understood a temple structure. And it says, when he said he'd taken it with tongs from the altar, that with, the, with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Right? That in the Hebrew temple... In Jerusalem, there was an altar, and on that altar was sacrifices made. And the idea was that the things that we do, that the Hebrew people called sin, that the Jewish theologians and Christian theologians called sin, those are those wrong things that we do, that we think that we are. Like, that sin, the only satisfaction of sin, punishment-wise, was something sacrificed. Because death was the punishment. Separation was the punishment. And so every year, just in fact, we just celebrated um, Yom Kippur, and, which is the Day of Atonement, which was the yearly time where the Jewish faith would gather for that significant sacrifice to cover their sin. And this is foreshadowing. And Isaiah is reminded of God's sacrifice. And then it says, then I heard the voice of the Lord, something he has not heard yet. He's saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Now, I recognize that so much of that passage feels so distant for us. But I want you to notice what Isaiah does in response to everything that just played out in front of us. Isaiah is standing in a, in a historical season where the king has passed away, where there are enemies on the horizon who are getting stronger, who are just biding their time before they come and conquer you. Everything, the 50 years of greatness has now been washed down the drain. And it looks like it's over. Panic, insecurity, instability, political unrest, all of it's present in the nation at the time. And what does Isaiah do in response to the grace that God gives him and in response to the vision of glory that he sees? He raises his hand and in the midst of panic he says no i have a purpose god send me in a, in a midst of a people who feel helpless he was like send me to be hopeful take send me out to them to demonstrate the hope that i have that now i've seen that our king is not dead he's alive that isaiah's response is meant i think to be a perfect picture for our response as christians because as 
people. As people who believe the king is alive. I think we are to respond differently in situations like this. And I want to draw a direct line between what we just read and where we are today with who we are as Christians. In John 12, 41, you can read this passage more if you want to kind of connect the dots fully, but I just want to highlight this one thing. John 12, 41, in a bigger passage where Jesus is referencing a specific passage that comes from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. John 12, 41 tells us that Isaiah in chapter 6, what he sees is Jesus, his glory, and his grace. Because if, as the church, we are people who believe our central message is grace, if we're not possible, if it's not possible for us to be gracious in our response to others, then we have no point delivering our message. We have no point in speaking and raising our hands and say, here am I, send me. But at the core of the Christian message is Jesus' glory and grace. And I believe that the message of grace that we have should be a moment we get to stand out. If anyone in this season right now can be gracious, it should be us who claim to follow Jesus, who have his message of grace. That if we can't be people in the midst of who he is and what he's done for us, then we're in huge trouble. That I believe that just like Isaiah stood and saw who the king was and what the king had done, and it led to him wanting to stand out, stand up, and make a difference. I think that's what the church is meant to be. A people who don't try to make points on social media, but try to make a difference in our society. A people whose hope is not built around who wins the election, but who came back from the dead in the resurrection. That is our hope. Let the election fall where it may fall. My hope is not in an election. It's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I'm not saying that voting isn't important. You should all vote if you're of legal age. We should all vote. Our voices matter. And elections, of course, have consequences, and ideas are important. But I would argue they're not the most important thing. That as the church in this season, we aren't people who should be panicking. We're people who have purpose. People who have a hope that can't be shaken or disturbed by any kind of week that we have. A people who understand that all nations will eventually rise and fall. That political views, no matter how passionate people have them, are ultimately temporary. There are no Democrats and Republicans in heaven, just Christians. Like, no one will hold to that party affiliation for the rest of eternity. People are the only forever thing. And that, as Christians, we are meant to understand the significance and the weight that right now when everything feels like it's up in the air, we are the one people who should be walking around confidently because of what we have underneath our feet. Because what we have underneath our feet, like what Isaiah saw in the year that King Uzziah died, was the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne. Jesus is not concerned about November the 3rd. 
He's not thrown in to chaos because of 2020. He hasn't mobilized some strike team or some type of advisory board to figure out what to do this year. We are secure and stable no matter how unstable and insecure everything around us is. I think we have a moment as Christians right now to be confident in the midst of other people's chaos and concern. That what's underneath our feet is strong and secure even when everything else is up in the air. And the reason this really matters, the reason I think we want to be people who raise our hand, who are the hopeful ones, who are the helpful ones, is because it takes years to build influence like that. But it only takes seconds to lose it. And it is possible in this moment where the world needs hope, where the world needs to see the influence of that hopefulness, of that stability, of that holy confidence that the king is alive. That in, in all of that, that it is possible that we could, in a few seconds on social media, or a few seconds of a sideways statement thrown out of our mouth, we could lose the influence that we've taken years to build by living out our life following Christ. Because if we lose our mind, then I believe we potentially lose the opportunity to proclaim our faith. Because if we lose our mind in the midst of this election, then ultimately what we say is that our hope is built on the election, not the resurrection. And let's not lose in this season the influence that we have. Let's not, in the midst of everyone throwing mud, slinging slander, talking about the, the pillars of democracy collapsing, Let's be people who say, even if they do, I know a foundation that's stronger than the pillars that hold up the democracy. Like, I know someone who's greater than the enemy, who's, who's stronger than a pandemic. And just in case you're thinking, oh my goodness, dude, you are so full of it. You clickbaited me into watching this message today by sending out an email saying you're going to talk about politics. And all you give me is pie in the sky, like... Christian flu-flu, love, kumbaya. No, no, I'm not. You see, once upon a time, there was a man named Jesus who performed miracles, who transformed lives. And as he began to work his three years of ministry in this small, little, significant part of the world that we now call Israel, he began to gather for himself a group of people, 12 of them to be exact, and if you were to dig down and study who those 12 were, you and I would probably be a little bit more on the same page because part of the 12, some of them were, were tax collectors for the Roman government. They were Roman sympathizers. They made money off the oppression. They weren't raging against the machine. They were the machine of oppression. And Jesus has some of them. And then Jesus has some of the opposite of them. They're called the zealots. They were the ones who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. They were the anarchists. Let's burn it down. Where the Roman tax collectors say, let's build it up. And yet Jesus' original 12 followers had people who want to build up the Roman government, had people who wanted to burn down the Roman government, people whose extremes, their views were so extreme in contrast with one another that they make a Republican-Democratic debate look like small kindergarten talk. 
I mean, the, the division and, and the separation that we have does not even come close to what the followers of Jesus had. And how could people that radically different from one another follow a resurrected rabbi? But they did. And not only did they, not only did they love one another, not only did they serve one another, not only did they make a difference, they walked out together. And when Jesus came out of the grave, they began to mobilize a group of people that we now call the church. You see, the early church was not known for the flag they waved. They were known for the cross that they bore. They weren't known for waving their political party. They were known for getting on their knees and washing the feet. They weren't known for holding down people. They were known for lifting up the people that society held down. They were known for the way they loved and the way they served, the way they sacrificed, not the political platforms that they stood on. They had something greater and stronger than allegiance to a flag or to a party, or to an elected official. They believed that their rabbi was God who had sent them on a mission to live and to love and to serve and to demonstrate that power. And that's exactly what they did. And 2,000 years later, we are here today joining with billions of people around the world who follow that resurrected rabbi named Jesus that Isaiah saw in chapter 6 of his book. Because that force for 2,000 years has marched forward and that love has trumped hate, that grace has overrun and has conquered and defeated so many of the enemies of society. It's restored relationships. It's brought families back together. That grace is stronger than any thing that might separate us. That I believe in this season, if the church is known for the cross they bear, for the way they serve, not for the flags they wave, or the parties that they speak about, I think the world might turn and look and listen instead of being critical. We have a moment. We have influence. Let's not waste it on something that 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now won't matter. One of the things that I think about frequently is that moment when the name of Jesus becomes the face of Jesus. That moment where everything I've sung about is now what I see. That moment where the ever after becomes the here. No, no longer a there, but a here. And in that moment, I think about my first reaction all the time. Here's what I believe. I believe when I finally see him, the one I've sung about, the one I've talked about, the one I've tried to live for, my first instinct will not be, man, I wish I had posted more sarcastic jabs on social media. Man, I really wish I demonized more people for their political views. Man, I really wish I'd put more hope in the election. I think if I'm not careful, my first reaction is going to be like, give me five more years. Because now that I see who you are and what you are and what you did for me, I will make those five years count. I will go back and build something that will last. I believe that if I 
in that first moment, if I could see him, that if I'm not careful how I live today, I'll regret it tomorrow when the name of Jesus finally becomes the face of Jesus. And that what Isaiah had in chapter 6 was ultimately a reset for him and for the nation of Israel. And what we have potentially today is a reset for us too. That's why at the end of this month, as we wrap up this series, we're actually going to do a virtual worship and communion night. Where through the power of technology, our team is going to have a very special worship communion night where we're all able to see one another and we're going to take communion together. Because at that point when a nation feels like it's being ripped apart, we are going to come together even more unified. And we'll pray and we'll believe and we'll work and we will be known for what we do for this community. Right now, privately, our leadership team, we're dreaming and scheming about ways that we can have a greater impact in 2020 than we've, and 2021 than we've ever had before. In the midst of what has been the most terrifying and most stressful year of, for us financially and organizationally, we're trying to figure out how we can give even more money away in 2021. Why? Because we believe we should be known for that. Because that's who the church is. And when the name of Jesus becomes the face of Jesus for me and for you, I hope we don't have regret. We have nothing but extreme pride over how we've lived our life for him. So here's some questions, slightly heavy questions I want to leave you with. Are there any areas where you, in, where you are in danger of losing influence? Any conversations, social media feeds, uh, you know, socially distanced water cooler talk, Right? Are there any areas where you're in danger of losing the influence that you've taken years to build with your kids, with your spouse, with your family members, your friends, with people who don't agree with you? Do people see your confidence as Christians or do they just see your concerns? And notice, I'm not saying you shouldn't have concerns, that you shouldn't have fears about where we are culturally or what we're dealing with. Elections matter. I get it. But I think as Christians, we don't just have concerns. We have a holy confidence that transcends them all. And do people around you who know you best, who love you the most, see your confidence, not just your concerns? And then if today the name of Jesus became the face of Jesus, what would your first reaction be? How would you respond? What would you say? What would you think? This is an incredibly powerful resetting question for you. If today the name of Jesus became the face of Jesus, what would your first reaction be? Would it be I'm loved and I'm wanted, I'm forgiven, that my life was lived in response like Isaiah where he said, here am I, send me? Or would it be fear of what he's about to say? Would it be regret for how you've lived your life? The beauty of this question is that by answering this question today, we're in a better position to make sure that's not the answer tomorrow. And so for some of you, maybe today's a day that you step further across the line and that while I haven't talked to you, I've been talking about those people who follow Jesus today, those Christians, that maybe today your first step, the answer to that question 
hit you hard and you're like, man, I know what my response is going to be. It would be holy terror. And I'd scream out like Isaiah, woe is me, I'm undone. And if that's the case, know that there is a way for hope and life. And it was through the Son. It's through Jesus. And I'd love to connect with you, talk more about it with you, or share more how you could step across that line. But it really is simple. It's just trust and faith. It's, uh, God, I'm terrified, but I believe that there is, like Isaiah, some, something you can cover me with that brings my forgiveness, that covers up the wrongs that I've done. And that we know that's Jesus. For those who are maybe curious about looking more into the Christian faith inside of our app is um, Exploring Faith Icon. You click on that or you go to EncounterChurch.com forward slash faith. You can listen to a video or request for me to send you a free book that I think is really helpful as you wrestle through faith. For some of us as Christians, it might be to simply say, God, this year has not been the best year. Not just for our nation, but for me either. And just to to practice what uh, the Greeks um, called the word repentance, which was I moved this way into repentment. I turned around and I started walking the exact opposite way. And that maybe for you today, it's to just turn away from what you've been doing, from the choices you've been making, from maybe some relationships that you've been in, and to begin to follow him instead of walking away from him. Because my desire isn't just for me. It's for you too. That the day that the name of Jesus becomes the face of Jesus. That we would be in awe. That we would stand in wonder. wonder of how can it be that you loved me this much? How can it be that your grace covered me this much? And I raised my hand. And I said, here am I, and you sent me, you used me in every area of my life, in my workplace, in my home space, in every other arena. You used me, but I still can't get over how you loved me and how you forgave me and the grace you gave to me. And I pray that that would mark us this month and next month and every month that we ever have on earth till the day we see him 